0: Right. You want to get out your message outline. It says, "The prophet goes on trial." Have that out to follow along. So we are in Jeremiah chapter 26 today. So can everybody hear me OK? Okay, I can't hear me okay, so um, uh, once again, we're going to read the whole uh, chapter, but we're going to read it as we go through it because it's long and there is a lot here. And so let's go ahead and get started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it so much. We need to know that everything that we need for faith and practice comes from the mouth of the Lord. We also need to know that our practice, how we live, is a direct reflection of our faith of what we believe. So use this word today to help us learn how to better line up our practice with our faith so that our lives match our words. We need to know that when your word is open before us, it is the word of the Lord. Thank you that Jeremiah is a prophetic book that builds our faith and gives us wisdom for life because it is built on the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah and through him to us. This morning, help us to hear it understand it, believe it, and obey it in both word and deed. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, as you have probably figured out by now, we live in a polarized world. And that's never been more obvious than when we're online. Facebook has many positive contributions, but its negative consequences can be overwhelming. And one of the negative consequences of having equal and instant access comes in the form of immediate feedback. And that's often most obvious from that certain class of person who speaks first and thinks later, if at all. Perhaps you have met this person. I sure have. Last November, I invited Amy Bird to come speak to my preaching class at RTSDC on the subject of preaching to women. And if you would like to know what she said, you can read it, as that lecture is now the last chapter in her book, No Little Women. She's now spoken a couple of times in my class, and that lecture has somewhat morphed into how women hear preaching. And since most congregations are at least 50% women, I thought this was a good subject for my mostly male students to hear. And as expected, it all went very well. We invited a number of people to that class, several professors sat in, Amy did a great job. End of story, or so it should have been. However, I made the dreadful mistake of posting a photo of her lecture with a short note that said it was my privilege to have Amy Bird at RTSDC today. She spoke to my Communications 1 class, Preaching, on the subject of preaching to women. The lecture was recorded and will hopefully be posted soon. For the curious, the last chapter in her book, No Little Women, was based on a previous version of this lecture. Short and sweet, but that didn't last. Within hours and even minutes, the comments started pouring in. You have women usurping authority to teach future pastors how to preach. This kind of behavior alters the thinking of the next generation of pastors and lays the groundwork for a more open rebellion against God's distinct roles for men and women. And on and on, but increasingly hostile. So I wrote back to this person and I said, I understand your position, but I would respectfully disagree. Most of the biblical passages on these issues are given in the context of the worship service of the local church. This is an educational institution, not a church, nor do they ordain anyone. And I remain fairly confident that my students, both past and present, have no doubts as to who has the authoritative voice in the room. Part of good preaching and pastoring is learning how to listen to the other half of the church. That was done in an academic setting today for one hour out of a 28-hour course, and I thought it was very productive and in no way laid the groundwork for rebellion. All of my students know where I stand on the issues of biblical authority and the necessity of faithfully expositing God's word since much of the course is built on that foundation. Now, this is given by way of explanation and probably not persuasion, but I'm okay with that. I know that both of us want what is best for the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, and those things that will further his kingdom, and for that, I am grateful. And I thought that answer would suffice. So I went to bed thinking the dust had settled. Naive me. I woke up on Wednesday to discover that my critic had reposted his comments on a PCA elder group, and there were dozens and dozens of comments. This is a scandal. You're inciting young men to rebellion in the PCA. We should bring charges if you tried, which didn't end well for them. And then came my personal favorite. If we allow this, it will lead to the fall of Presbyterianism in America and the general demise of Reformed theology in the West, which apparently made it my most productive day ever. A few weeks later, I was speaking to Sean Michael Lucas on another RTS-related matter, and I relayed this conversation to him. He's one of the great historians of the PCA. So I told them that when he wrote the book, The Fall of Presbyterianism in America, I wanted a footnote. (laughs) He just laughed. He said, dude, you're getting a whole chapter, and I'm going to (laughs) call it, and we all blame Dave. So there's that. 166 comments later. Thankfully, my defenders carried the day with no further comments from me. But the whole thing left a bad taste in my mouth. But then on Thursday, I went back to RTS to teach another class. And Scott Redd, the president, asked if he could have a word with me before class. It was like getting called into the principal's office. He was fine. I was so apologetic. And then later that night, Joanne was out of town, and I was working late. And so I went to pick up some Chinese food on the way home. And as I pulled up in front of the restaurant, Ligon Duncan called. Ligon is the chancellor of the whole RTS system. He's the big boss. And he just said, can you tell me what happened? So I did. I was mortified. I think he thought it was funny. I'm pretty sure he's not mad at me because he's agreed to come preach at Potomac Hills this October. So that'll be great. But in the back of my mind, I'm wondering if he's just coming to straighten me out. (laughs) At some point, most of us have to face false accusations, unjust criticisms, and unfounded assumptions. We live in a social media world where those types of statements are being made constantly. And they can really hurt. One pastor, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, made the following comment. Never reformed enough. Got to keep it up. It's a vice that we squeeze and squeeze to make sure we're right. And even though I know he meant it in jest because I know him and that's just him, I think he hit the nail on the head. We get into these online debates and very quickly, it's no longer about persuasion, but about winning. We're right and we're not gonna stop until you admit we're right. And I don't care what I have to do or what we have to do in order to make sure we're right. And I wish I could say that's an invention of American social media. Um, But the reality is that kind of thinking has been around for thousands of years. And it was certainly around in Jeremiah's day, and it's pretty much the main point behind the events of Jeremiah 26, which is our text for today. So let's turn there and see what we can glean from this somewhat odd passage. And we're going to start with a dangerous sermon repeated. Verses 1 through 6, a dangerous sermon repeated. Now, if you remember from last week, those of you that were here, others can go look it up online on our website, uh, Jeremiah 24 was about good and bad figs. And apparently, there were some people that took exception to being called bad figs. And then Jeremiah 25 was set eight years in the past and explained how those people had become the bad figs. So we're still now eight to nine years in the past, and everyone's still mad at Jeremiah. And so now the people have gathered around Jeremiah, hoping that somehow he'll change his message to something more acceptable. Becoming more acceptable really hasn't been one of Jeremiah's strong suits so far in the book. Why they thought that would change, now I have no idea. But here they are, and Jeremiah gets up to preach again. But he doesn't preach a new sermon. He rather gives a summary of an old sermon, and he's starting at verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord, all the words that I command you to speak to them, do not hold back a word. It may be that they will listen and every one turn from his evil way, that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I have set before you and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. His message is a shorter version of his famous temple sermon in Jeremiah chapter seven. And there the focus was on the sermon itself. Here the attention is uh, drawn to the reaction it provokes. So perhaps Jeremiah seven records the full text of the sermon and Jeremiah 26 is essentially the sermon notes. And it's sort of the outline like you have on Sunday morning. Maybe just like most good preachers, Jeremiah repeats his best sermons more than once. And the sermon is a good one. To begin with, it had good content. It had two elements every faithful uh, sermon should have, law and grace. Good preaching both explains the law of God, which exposes sin, and proclaims the grace of God, which forgives sin. And Jeremiah began with the law, and he doesn't hold back. He follows the instructions he's given in verse 2. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house. Speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not hold back a word. And in the fuller version of the sermon back in chapter 7, Jeremiah preached nearly every one of the Ten Commandments and explained in detail how the people were failing to keep covenant with God um, by disobeying the commandments. However, Jeremiah didn't preach the law to condemn them, but to convict them. God hoped the preaching of the law would turn people away from sin. We see in verse three, it may be that they will listen and everyone turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. So there's still hope. Jeremiah's preaching the possibility of Grace. If the people of Jerusalem repented, God would be faithful and just to forgive their sin. And even the preaching of the law has the gracious intention of turning people away from sin. And the law of God shows us our sin, and then the grace of God forgives them. That hasn't changed. Dave just read from uh, Romans 5. We just sang a song based on Romans 5. Let me read it for you again. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it teaches us that law without grace is legalism, grace without law is license. You need them both. So not only did Jeremiah's sermon have good content, it also had strong application. Jeremiah preached the consequences of failing to keep the law. If the people of Jerusalem failed to obey God, then their city and their temple would be destroyed. Picking up now at verse 4. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I have set before you, and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. Now, if the people of Jerusalem wanted to see what would happen to them, all they needed to do was to go to Shiloh. Shiloh is the city uh, where God used to dwell. Before Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant rested in Shiloh, but it didn't stay there. When the people broke God's commands, the Ark was carried off by the Philistines, and Shiloh was ruined. And therefore, when God threatens to make the temple like Shiloh, he's threatening to tear it down. Shiloh represents the departure of God's spirit. A Shiloh is any place that God once lived but lives there no longer. In our country, many church buildings have become Shilohs. Most old church buildings, particularly in metro areas, are being turned into offices and condos. Because the churches that would like to buy them, like us, can't outbid the developers. Now, a friend of mine pastors in Charleston, South Carolina. And they tried to buy an old downtown church. Beautiful, historic building. Joanne and I got to worship there with them a few years back. But they couldn't come up with the money. And then the mayor got mad. And the mayor said she was tired of losing all their churches and rallied the people of the city to contribute enough money to buy the building for the church. The unbelievers of Charleston, South Carolina, raised the money for a PCA church so their neighborhood could keep the church and not have to live with yet another bloody condo. We need more mayors like that. Truth be told, it wasn't all roses. Once they got the church, they discovered it was a dump. And they've spent the last 10 years and hundreds of thousands of dollars fixing it up, and they're only about halfway done. But that's why most old church buildings get converted to commercial uses. The other main reason that happens is because dying liberal churches refuse to sell to growing conservative churches. So they just cash out, and it becomes another office building. People used to go there to get saved. Now they go there to get paid. They've become modern-day Shilohs. And Jeremiah has now told the people that their holy city of Jerusalem is going to become the next Shiloh. And not just the city, but the temple as well. Now that's preaching an unpopular message. And the people are so hostile to this message that they angrily form a mob, hastily put him on trial, and eagerly demand the death penalty. And because the man's a true prophet, putting him to death would have brought the guilt Of shedding innocent blood on every inhabitant of the city and jeremiah 26 has a complete record of this criminal proceeding and so we turn next to the death sentence debate we're going to look at two sections of scripture here on the death sentence debate because one man's sermon turns out to be another man's criminal offense and jeremiah is just trying to preach law and grace the way god told him But the people didn't see it that way, and they make him a victim of public endangerment. Look at verses 7 to 9 with me. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking, all the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people. Then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant, and all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord? Now, I have preached well over a thousand sermons, and I have yet to be greeted after church with, You shall die. (laughs) Maybe that's coming, but I've survived so far. Not so for Jeremiah. Jeremiah. He's grabbed by the mob, and they ain't coming to get his autograph. They're out to get him, and this ugly scene would have undoubtedly ended in murder had not the authorities rushed in to break things up, and they follow all the proper procedures. They take Jeremiah from God's house to the courthouse, so to speak, the city gate, verse 10 When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. So as soon as the judges sat down in the city gates, the court is in session. And the city officials, they're not giving in to mob rule. So Jeremiah's trial begins with a reading of the charges. The intentions of the plaintiffs are revealed when they call for the death penalty, even before they state their charge or make their case. We see that Verse 11, then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, this man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. Facts of the case are clear. The prosecution sees no need to even present evidence. According to them, all the people had heard Jeremiah's sermon. And in the minds of these lying prophets and false priests, this sermon is a capital offense. It's blasphemous and treasonable. Jeremiah's is preaching against God's house and God's city, and they, the priests and prophets, thought that's so obviously wrong and that they are so obviously right. The prophets and the priests aren't interested in repentance. They have totally ignored Jeremiah's message of law and grace. They're more concerned with what he said about the temple. To them, speaking against the temple was treason. It had become a national shrine, sort of a good luck charm to protect them from having to obey God. So they're super offended when Jeremiah told them God's going to destroy their precious temple, and we hear him cry out, You shall die. Now, as you know, Jeremiah doesn't lose his life. He finds it. He finds his life, not by delivering himself from death, but with the help of advocates who take up his case. Some people listen when Jeremiah said in verse 15, only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. And as soon as they realized they were in danger of putting an innocent man to death, they leapt to his defense, starting at verse 16. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Now it's real key that you notice something here. It's the priests and the prophets who want to kill Jeremiah. His defense comes from the city officials. Now Jeremiah has just prophesied against the city. They should be the ones accusing him. And since he prophesied in the name of the Lord, the priests and the prophets should be defending him but they're not, so there's this role reversal going on here. What we would expect the prosecutor are actually the defenders, and the people we would expect to be the defenders are actually the accusers. And perhaps, because the officials are actually concerned with justice and not just with winning, they understood legal cases are tried usually on the basis of precedent. Judges want to know if a similar case has been tried before. If someone in a similar situation has been charged with a similar crime, that case may have some bearing on the present trial. And so Jeremiah's defenders came up with a precedent. They remembered that, in fact, someone else had, in a similar situation, been charged with a similar crime. Look at verse 17. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah, this is the prophet Micah, Micah of Morsheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. And the elders are quoting Micah chapter 3, verse 12 which shows how well some Old Testament believers knew the Scriptures. So this happened nearly a century before. And Micah had prophesied against the city of Jerusalem and against the temple. And what happened to him? Well, look at verse 19. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah, put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster he had pronounced against them? but we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. Micah is apparently the rare prophet in Israel. People actually listened to him. That didn't happen very often. When the Assyrians besieged Jerusalem in 701 BC, Hezekiah repented and the Lord delivered the city. And the lesson's obvious. Jeremiah must not be put to death. More importantly, the people should listen to his message, repent of their sins, and perhaps Jerusalem would be saved. First of all, this defense shows how important it is for believers, both then and now, to be strong in their knowledge of the Bible. When spiritual leaders stray from Scripture, it's the people, it's all of you, who have to call them back to biblical truth. The priests and prophets of Jeremiah's time are not thinking, or acting biblically. Jeremiah wouldn't get any help from them. But he's saved by a Bible verse that's been kept safe in the hearts of God's people. Now we get a second precedent. It's an example of unfaithfulness. And it's about a man named Uriah, not the common Uriah we know of from uh, David and Bathsheba. This is a different Uriah, it's a contemporary of Jeremiah's. And it comes at the end of the chapter. And Uriah's story starts out a little bit like Jeremiah's, verse 20. There is another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemiah from Kiriath-Jerim. He prophesied against this city and against this land in words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, that's the current king, with all his warriors and all the officials heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men. These were like spies. Elnathan, the son of Ekbor, and others with him, and they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. So what makes Uriah's story so different is its tragic ending. And that's because his life is not an example for us, but a counter-example. There's two things wrong with what Uriah did. First, he ran away scared. He didn't trust the Lord to save him. He feared men rather than God. Second, he ran to Egypt. God warned his people against turning to the Egyptians for salvation. So Uriah's flight is actually a sign of disbelief, of apostasy. And the proper literary term for Uriah as he serves is Jeremiah's foil. He shows up in Jeremiah 26 for contrast. Uriah's cowardice reveals Jeremiah's courage. And Jeremiah is the good example to follow. He obeys the commission that he received when God first called him in the ministry in Jeremiah 1. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And Jeremiah is willing to seem like a traitor to his people as long as he didn't commit treason against God. And so once the charges have been read and they've had the debate, now it's up to the defendant to make his plea. In effect, Jeremiah pleads not guilty by reason of obedience. Not a common plea. And so we see his saving non-defense. His saving non-defense, going back to verse I'm going to read verses 12 and 15, and we'll pick up the others. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words you have heard. In verse 15, Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to speak to all these words in your ears. So Jeremiah explains that he hasn't been preaching on his own behalf. And the people of uh, Jerusalem are blaming the messenger, but their real complaint is with the message. Human nature being what it is, ministers often come under criticism. I say this from experience. But sometimes criticism is justified, in which case we need to learn humility. But a surprisingly high number of complaints ministers receive are not complaints against him at all, but complaints against God. She's easier to talk to us. And that's certainly the case here. And Jeremiah is not afraid to point it out. The people thought they're contending with Jeremiah, but they're actually contending with God. If they had a grievance, they have to take it up with God Himself. He's the one who's warning them about judgment and calling them to repentance. That's why we have this constant refrain throughout the book of Jeremiah the word of the Lord came to me, say this. Thus says the Lord. That happens dozens and dozens and dozens of times throughout the whole book. And so while Jeremiah is making his plea, he takes advantage of the opportunity to repeat his message again. Verse 13. Now therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he's pronounced against you. See, Jeremiah is a good preacher, and good preachers repeat themselves as often as they can because it helps people Remember. So it's, that's why speaking and writing are different. When you're writing, you always want to say the same thing differently. But when you're speaking, you want to say it not just the same way, the exact same way, five more times than is necessary, so people will remember it. Anyway, then Jeremiah explains his reasoning. Although he pled not guilty, he's not interested in defending himself. Verse 14. As for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. He submits to the verdict of the court. His only concern is to be God's faithful messenger. He's not going to lift a finger to save himself. In the end, Jeremiah is delivered. He's acquitted of all charges. Opinion turns when he warns the people uh, about the guilt of innocent blood. But it's not certain until the very last verse of the chapter, verse 24, we read, (coughs) excuse me, we read the hand of Aacom the son of Shaphan was with Jeremiah so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death now Shaphan is the scribe who first read the book of the law when it was discovered during the reign of King Josiah so this is an important guy happened all the way back in 2 Kings 22. (coughs) And Shaphan had at least three sons. And they're all men of God. And we're going to meet the other two sons. But here we meet uh, Ahakam, who delivers Jeremiah from death. And the verdict in Jeremiah's case, the whole trial, everything about this odd chapter, which is just sort of this historical description of what happens, is supposed to remind us over, uh, remind us of another prophet who's handed over to the people to be put to death. You've probably figured out by now that it's Jesus. Because like Jeremiah, Jesus is tried in the city of Jerusalem. Like Jeremiah, he's seized by this fickle a band of angry men who crowded him on every side. Like Jeremiah, he's charged with treason against the people. And when Jesus appeared before the Sanhedrin, at his religious trial, false witnesses testified against him. We see that in Matthew 26. Like Jeremiah, Jesus is innocent. Of all the charges brought against him, in fact, he's innocent of all charges because he's without sin. And like Jeremiah, he didn't defend himself. At his religious trial, we read Mark 14, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Same thing happened at his political trial before Pontius Pilate in John 19. So when the trial of Jeremiah is placed beside the trial of Jesus, you can find some obvious similarities, the charge, arrest, the accusation, defense. And so when some people said that Jesus was the second coming of Jeremiah, Matthew 16, they're more accurate than they realized. But there is one big, huge, great difference between the trial of Jeremiah and the trial of Jesus. And that's the verdict. At Jesus' trial, no one heeded the warning that his death would bring the guilt of innocent blood upon his executioners. No elder stepped forward to argue that Micah or even Jeremiah himself offered a legal precedent in Jesus' defense. No one saved Jesus the way Ahakam saves Jeremiah. Jesus was not delivered from death, he was delivered unto death. He was handed over to be executed. He was arrested, charged, convicted, and crucified. That's a totally different ending. And the trial of Jeremiah reveals. What a wicked thing it is to hand Jesus over to death. As immoral as the people are in the days of Jeremiah, they were horrified by the prospect of bringing the guilt of the blood of an innocent man on themselves in their city. And when Jeremiah warns them of that danger of bearing guilt for a wrongful death, they changed their mind. But the Jews and the Gentiles who crucified Jesus had no such worries. They, in fact, invite the guilt on themselves. Matthew 27 so when Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Thus, when Jesus was crucified, the guilt for his blood came to rest on all humanity. That's why we say our sins sent Christ to the cross as much as the sins of anyone else. But there's one other great, big, huge difference between the trial of Jeremiah and the trial of Jesus. The verdict against Jesus is overturned on appeal. In his dying moments, Jesus appeals to the highest court in the universe. Luke 23, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. But he not only appeals his case, he appeals our case as well. Remember, he also said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And God the Father accepted those appeals. The guilty verdict given to Jesus by sinful men is overruled by a holy God. And the proof of uh, the success of that appeal is an empty tomb on Easter Sunday. The resurrection proves that Jesus was innocent of all charges. And since Jesus was wrongly executed, the moral law of the highest court in the universe demanded that he be returned to life. Furthermore, the resurrection proves the sacrifice Jesus offered for sin has been accepted by God. The appeal Jesus made for God to overturn the verdict against you has been just as successful as his own appeal. Once he paid for your sins, the verdict against you was no longer able to stand. And if you trust that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you believe that he was raised from the dead, then you too will be delivered from death. And yet, since we all know that, and we all know we're safe with Jesus and that we're forgiven and redeemed and accepted and loved, Why do we still keep insisting on getting our own way and wanting to be right and on having to win? Why do we find it so difficult to simply be gracious and kind and trust to God to bring about his own good ends? I'm going to answer that question with a story. Tom Breeden was one of my students. He's now pastoring in a PCA church down in Charlottesville. He's a thoughtful guy. And after Dr. Howard Griffith passed away this week, and we prayed for him last Sunday, and uh, he passed away this week, um, Tom wrote, there's an RTS Facebook group, and he wrote there there was a key lesson he learned from Dr. Griffith, and I thought his story fit in well with today's sermon, so I contacted him and asked him if I could share it, and he agreed. So I'm going to let Tom tell it. I'm going to read this is his story. He says, I know I'm not alone when I say that I took the news of Dr. Griffith's passing this morning pretty hard. As we all grieve together, I thought it might be helpful to remember the many ways that God has blessed us through his life and ministry. I'll go first. I've probably told this story a hundred times, and I'm sure I'll tell it a hundred more. It was my second semester at RTS, and I was taking worship with Dr. Griffith. One of our assignments every week was to write a prayer on a doctrinal topic that he would assign. And then each class, he would select someone to come up and lead that prayer in front of the class. And we would talk about how well it went. One week, the topic was hell. That's a pretty tough one to lead prayer on. And one of the students in the class was from Wesley Theological Seminary, a woman seeking ordination in the Episcopal Church. RTS is part of a consortium of 10 seminaries in the Mid Atlantic area. And you can take classes in any of them. And uh, so, anyway, she was taking this class, and it's her week to lead. I remember her walking up to the front of the class holding her paper so tightly. And she quietly started with this I'm not really sure if I believe in hell or not, but I'm going to do the best I can. And with that, she began praying. When she was finished, I looked to the back of the room. I just knew Dr. Griffith, our resident theologian, was going to set her theology straight. But he didn't. He responded with remarkable remarkable kindness and gracious encouragement. I wanted Dr. Griffith to show her how right we were. He wanted to show us all how beautiful the grace of God is. Jesus doesn't hurt hurting people, and neither did Howard. I must confess I don't remember everything I learned in seminary, but I'll never forget what I learned from Howard that day. I can be right and still be wrong. Loving others is always more important than showing how much I know. Howard taught me so much theology and countless pastoral skills. I'll be forever grateful for that, but more importantly, he helped teach me. Godly character, and I have no idea how I would be doing ministry today without that. Tom said, I wanted to show how right we were. He wanted to show how beautiful the grace of God is. May his tribe increase. He will be missed. And may we be willing to let go of having to be right, but may we never let go of wanting to show how beautiful the grace of God is. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you that most of us struggle with wanting to be right. We would rather be right than kind. We would rather be bold than beautiful. We would rather be arrogant than humble. Lord, our sins are so many. Please have mercy upon us. Give us a greater desire to know your word, to know that it's powerful in and of itself, that it's relevant to every situation of our lives, and to believe it comes from your hand. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being overwhelmed by our own fears. And continue to work in us, each of us, this year as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees and as we hear what he hears. Teach us to respond with greater faith, a renewed confidence in your word and an ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises and through those things to draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Hear God's blessing from Second Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes to Timothy and says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. God bless you. We'll see you next week.